Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College on the luxurious Yellow Breaches Creek Vacation Retreat in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 27 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. We are recording this episode during hurricane season, and a lot of us have the Gulf states and the Caribbean on our minds. Hurricane season has been so bad that I actually have to confess, I had to Google the name of the hurricane that caused so much damage in Houston and the surrounding areas in Texas and Louisiana. Of course, that's Hurricane Harvey, but I think that is a testament to just how many catastrophic hurricanes have vied for our attention. We have damage caused by Hurricane Irma, not just in Florida, but also the islands of Barbuda. St. Martin, both which have been described as, quote, 95% destroyed, leaving a significant portion of their of their inhabitants homeless. Uh, and then, of course, we have Hurricane Maria that has Puerto Rico just devastated and in the midst of a, uh, of a humanitarian crisis. And considering the breadth of the Puerto Rican diaspora here on the mainland, the personal devastation for those with family and loved ones still on the island is even further reaching. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a historic hurricane season. Uh, I was recently browsing the web. I did a post about this a while ago on the blog. I was browsing the web and came across Alexander Hamilton's description of a hurricane that hit his home island of St. Croix in September 1772. So in order to provide some historical context to this really rough hurricane season, I thought I'd read some of his account of that hurricane. Hamilton says, I take up my pen just to give you an imperfect account of one of the most dreadful hurricanes that memory or any records, whatever, can trace, which happened here on the 31st at night. It began about dusk at north and raged very violently till 10 o'clock. Then ensued a sudden and unexpected interval, which lasted about an hour. Meanwhile, the wind was shifting round to the southwest point from whence it returned with doubled fury and continued so till near three o'clock in the morning, Good God, what horror and destruction. It's impossible for me to describe or you to form any idea of it. It seemed as if a total dissolution of nature was taking place. The roaring of the sea and wind, fiery meteors flying about in the air, the prodigious glare of almost perpetual lightning, the crash of the falling houses and the ear-piercing shrieks of the distressed were sufficient to strike astonishment into angels. 
A great part of the buildings throughout the land are leveled to the ground, almost all the rest very much shattered. Several persons killed and numbers utterly ruined, whose families running about the streets unknowing where to find a place of shelter, the sick exposed to the keenness of water and air without a bed to lie upon or a dry covering to their bodies, and our harbors entirely bare. In a word, misery in all its most hideous shapes spread over the whole face of the country. A strong smell of gunpowder added somewhat to the terrors of the night, and it was observed that the rain was surprisingly salt. Indeed, the water is so brackish and full of sulfur that there is hardly any drinking it. Go to Google and and, um, read the rest of this letter. It's a very powerful and descriptive letter from, from Hamilton, and I think it really helps to put our current hurricane season into some historical perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm especially struck by the final line there of that uh, describing the potability of the water. And yeah. at the time of recording, this is two weeks we're recording uh, this podcast after Maria hit. More than half of Puerto Rico's population is still without access to potable water. And because of the nature of the infrastructure impact, the number is actually growing over time, not shrinking. So, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a testament to the enduring damage that can be uh, inflicted by a hurricane. Yeah, and our, obviously our thoughts, our prayers go out to everybody who has been hit by these hurricanes. We hope that the federal government will continue to uh, do its part to help these people who are suffering. You know, the hurricane season just just hits so quickly. Um, things happen so fast. Since we're so driven by the news coverage of these events, they become kind of sensationalized. And, you know, we watch these reporters out there standing in the midst of the hurricane. We watch them hit Texas or Florida or Puerto Rico. You know, and then the news stations spend a few days on the coverage, and then they're off to the next story, which in some cases is another hurricane, right? And we forget about the recovery efforts, the human lives affected by these disasters, and then the continuing need for relief as the cameras disappear and uh, the, the news stations turn to some other story. This is, in my mind, I think, one of those moments when I'm less worried about politics and more concerned with the administrative capabilities of our executive branch. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't care who you are or what your political affiliation is. I'm going to cheer you on if you can cut through the bureaucracy and get aid where it needs to go. Unfortunately, what we're seeing on the ground here in Puerto Rico, home to well over 3 million American citizens, is all politics aside, a failure to accomplish this central responsibility of the executive branch of our government. Yeah, definitely. I would have to agree with that, too. It looks like we're having another kind of Bush response to Katrina, which was not necessarily that great either. Um, So, you know, we've been talking here a little bit. We've been trying to avoid politics, but on the political scene uh, right now, we've obviously seen a different kind of hurricane in the last nine months hit the United States in the form of our current president, Donald Trump. And in fact, this episode, we hope to bring together some thoughts on Trump his vacation resort, Mar-a-Lago, and connect this with Florida history, the history of presidential vacations, and a larger social history of race, class, consumerism, and even real estate development in the Sunshine State and even beyond. Yes, I think there are some interesting connections here. I hope we can pull it off, pull them all together. Well, I think we have an excellent guest who can help us do that. Professor Julian Shambliss of Rollins College has a great piece at the website of the Boston Review titled Draining the Swamp. And in this piece, he explores Mar-a-Lago and Trump in the context of Florida history. 
I read it a few weeks ago, Drew, and knew we had to get him on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to this interview. But before we get to that interview with Professor Chambliss, tell us how you can support our efforts here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Well, yes, and I, I, I should point out, of course, right now we are in a moment when there are, there are bigger needs necessarily than just our, our podcast. And, and as we talk about hurricane season, I think we would be remiss if we did not make it very clear that our, our primary responsibility should be to take care of, of those in, in very dire need. So please go give of your resources and your talents as you can to help uh, relief efforts wherever they are you know, and, and to whatever extent you are capable. Yeah. I think, I think just to interrupt for a second, Drew, I think I wrote a piece on my blog. I said, uh, if you, if you have some extra money, give it to a charity relief agency that's helping people with the hurricane. If you have a little bit more extra money after you do that, give it to another charitable relief organization that's helping. And then, you know, if you have anything left over, you may want to consider, uh, contributing to, uh, the way of improvement leads own podcast. How can they do that, Drew? Right. Well, I mean, at first, I do need to to say thank you to those who have already given. We are, as always, supported by Lisa Deguardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams, as well as our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We also want to give a big shout out to our newest Sterling supporter, Matt Lakemaker, who was a Pound supporter and recently increased his pledge. So, thank you so much for your help. Yeah, I met Matt actually uh, last week at a uh, at a conference, uh, the Evangelical Mind Conference. It was great to touch base with him and um, make a face to face connection with one of our patrons. If you do want to join us, and of course, with the caveat that this is only after hurricane relief has been satisfactorily satisfactorily taken care of, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com slash support. There you'll find all the links for becoming either a recurring supporter. Or if you prefer, you can opt for a one-time donation. Yeah, Drew, I just want to, again, thank all of you who are supporting our efforts here. Uh, I've been writing on the blog a little bit about how we really would like to sort of up our game here, take the podcast maybe even to a weekly to weekly podcast, get some more guests, bring in a little more bells and whistles and so forth, maybe pay our, uh, pay our, our studio producer, Josh, a little bit more. Uh, he's laughing back mm-hmm. there, right? Um, and uh, we could really use your support. We we get a lot of good feedback um, about the podcast. A lot of you are looking for more content, and we'd love to deliver it to you. We're not in a position to do that right now, but we'd like to be. So thank you for, for considering a donation or a pledge through our Patreon account. Well, let's dive into our content for today. John, I believe you have some initial commentary for us. Nancy Reagan famously said, Presidents don't get vacations. They just get a change of scenery. Since the beginning of the Republic, presidents have sought such a change of scenery, coupled with a little rest, relaxation, and perhaps some golf, to escape the confines of Washington, D.C. Early presidents such as Washington, Jefferson, went home to Mount Vernon, Monticello, to tend to family business. But by the turn of the 20th century, With the rise of the modern vacation, presidential getaways tended to take place at beautiful locales, often near water, and included family members and some downtime for the leader of the free world. 
In the 19th century, the Jersey Shore was a popular destination for presidential vacations. Franklin Pierce liked Cape May. So did Benjamin Harrison. He made the city's stately Congress Hall a summer White House. Ulysses S. Grant spent every summer of his presidency in Long Branch, New Jersey. Woodrow Wilson liked Long Branch, too. He spent his presidential summers at a 52-room mansion in the seaside town. And then there was James Garfield. He was shot at a train station in Long Branch on July 2nd, 1881, and sadly never recovered. But the Jersey Shore was not the only place presidents spent their vacations. Harry Truman spent 175 days of his presidency in the Florida Keys at what he called the quote-unquote Little White House. This was a submarine-based naval station, which was eventually converted to a single-family home. Dwight Eisenhower spent his summers in places where world-class golf courses were located, including Augusta National in Georgia. John Kennedy split his time between the Kennedy family compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and Hammersmith Farm in Newport, Rhode Island, the childhood home of his wife, Jackie. Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, and George W. Bush liked to spend vacations on their ranches, while George H.W. Bush preferred the family compound in Kennebunkport, Maine. Presidential vacations have always been controversial. For whatever reason, Americans don't like to see their tax dollars going to support a president on the golf course or lounging by the pool. Franklin Roosevelt was slammed by political opponents for his many trips on the presidential yacht. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were criticized relentlessly for their vacations on plush Martha's Vineyard. George Bush made 77 visits to his Crawford, Texas ranch, a total of 490 days. Barack Obama spent 217 days on vacation, costing taxpayers just under $100 million. Donald Trump has spent $61 million on vacations to his Florida resort Mar-a-Lago and his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey. And he has only been president for nine months. Trump is unique on the presidential vacation front, not only because he takes an expensive trip almost every weekend, but unlike his predecessors, he is in the resort business. His Palm Beach estate Mar-a-Lago is not a family ranch or compound. It is a private club for wealthy Floridians who can afford the $200,000 a year initiation fee, the $14,000 a year annual membership fee, or the $2,000 room fee for an overnight stay. Several government ethicists have already noted the blurry line between the business of the federal government that takes place at Mar-a-Lago and the free advertising that Trump property receives every time the president visits or the resort is mentioned in the news. Needless to say, Mar-a-Lago has seen a nice bump in membership since Trump became president. But there is even more we can say about Mar-a-Lago. As today's guest Julian Chambliss argues, Trump's winter White House provides a window into a long history of class strife, inequality, real estate development, and even climate change that has defined Florida for more than a century. With the ascendancy of Donald Trump to the American presidency, this legacy of Florida's past, to quote Shambliss, now belongs to all of us.
Thanks, John. Our guest today is Julian Chambliss, professor of history at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, where he directs the Africa and African American Studies programs. Chambliss teaches courses on urban history and African American history at Rollins and has written extensively on the history of comic books in American culture. As a teacher-scholar concerned with community and identity, he has designed numerous public digital history projects that trace community development, document diverse experience, and explore the cultural complexity of Central Florida. He has been recognized for his community engagement work with the Cornell Distinguished Service Award and a Florida Campus Compact Service Learning Award. In addition to his work at Rollins, Shambliss serves as coordinator of the Media, Arts, and Culture Special Interest Section for the Florida Conference of Historians. We should note, while we are very excited to have Dr. Chambliss joining us, we did have some connectivity issues that affected the quality of the audio of the call. We are really excited today to have Professor Julian Chambliss uh, from Rollins College with us here on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. He is the author of a phenomenal piece in the Boston Review about Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago, Florida history. It's called Draining the Swamp. And we want to talk a little bit with him about that article uh, so, Professor Chambliss, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, happy to be here. Before we get into this great piece that you wrote, and and really, it's it's kind of providing a little context for our listeners. Um, let's talk a little bit about Florida history. You know something about that. Um, you write in your <laughs> you write in your piece for almost 150 years. Wealthy outsiders have fought an anemic state over who gets to enjoy paradise. I love that line. Tell us a little bit about uh, this kind of history of development in Florida, um, you know, especially in the last, say, 100 years that kind of sets the context for um, the the new uh, winter White House in Mar-a-Lago. Well, when we talk about Florida development, of course, Florida uh, was really underdeveloped. Uh, for much of the 19th century, uh, it's really not until the mid-century they really started to see uh, any development in Florida. There was an Improvement Act in 1855 um, that it started the whole process of railroads, but it wasn't wasn't quite effective. But even in that act, um, one of the things that's always really interesting about development in Florida is that it's private developers, sort of with the uh, support of the state, and the state's not very strong. So uh, even in, in that mid-century period, a very famous Florida politician, David Uly, was the president of the Florida Railroad. And so there's this like, uh, relationship between public and private in terms of development of Florida. But it really kicks up uh, after the Civil War and really in the 1880s and 1890s when you see the emergence of figures like uh, Henry Flagler and Henry Plant. Uh, Flagler and Plant are really sort of transformative figures for Florida. They um, create the railroad system, Flagler on the East Coast, Florida East Coast Railroad, plant with his plant system going uh, from Tampa down the West Coast. And what they do is that they market Florida to uh, a really a very particular set of consumptive individuals. They become very important to the identity of Florida for a lot of people in the North. So the plant system and the Flagler system are, are a mix of hotels and railroads that are selling Florida to uh, people in other parts of the country. And in fact, Florida is a kind of um, state sort of advertised itself after the Civil War as the frontier you could afford. 
and it's trying to attract uh, people to settle here because it's chronically underdeveloped. Along the coast, there is a sort of um, paradise uh, punctuated by these sort of grand hotels being built by people like Flagler and Plant, like the Hotel Ponce de Leon, which has you know steam power and electric lights in 1888. Wow. Um, and those hotels are really sort of like palaces that capture uh, exotic European and, and, and um, Eastern design elements and sort of present it in the Florida context. And so you have these huge hotels with large amounts of staff that are being marketed to wealthy people. And you can see this in, in the literature. Florida actually sort of like shifts from an untamed frontier to a kind of idyllic paradise in travel literature in the 1880s and 1890s as more and more people um, are seeking a way to sort of get away from the sort of massive urbanization that you see in the Northeast and the Midwest, right? You think of a place like Chicago, you think of like right. a place like New York, and you think about the massive growth and, and really concentration of people and industry in those places. And this is one of the things that sparks a sort of rediscovery of the country, right? You, you see that in, in, the, in the Northeast and the Midwest. Well, people want to go out to the country and get away from this sort of like right, concentration, right. but they want to come to Florida too. Uh, and so that that largesse on the part of the state to bring developers in and sort of support them and, and give them large tracts of land right away that they you know sell at really cheap prices. But you know from their perspective, they're generating development become really important to shaping the Florida experience. Yeah. Now are they so many people? Yeah, are they are these developers like Plant and Flagler? Are they um, making wanting it as a sort of vacation destination, or do they like a tourism, or are they wanting people to kind of settle there permanently, or both? It's both, but it's primarily a, a tourism. If you if you look at the system, like the Flagler system and the Plant system, what you see is that they're extending the railroad famously, of course, Flagler extending the railroad that first down to Miami, then all the way to Key West yeah. by 1912. When he arrived in Miami, there were scant 300 people in in the town of Miami. Wow! Um, but bringing the railroad there, of course, helped stimulate development very very quickly. Within a few decades, the Miami that is going to give birth to a sort of Art Deco movement, Art Modern movement, is there. And so it's a it's very much a tourist destination. But once those tourists are there, of course, that sparks development, right? So there's a, right. a huge land boom. In, in Florida, um, starting in the 1910s, and really sort of culminating in the huge land boom in the 1920s that sees the creation of a large number of towns uh, in Florida, like Coral Gables, for instance. Um, these are all these are all really successful examples of um, what we would understand today as transit-oriented development, right? Yeah, so yeah. you lay down a, a light rail track, and then and suddenly there are housing developments and businesses close by those train stations. Uh, the same is true for 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 this development as well. Uh, uh, the towns that the, the railroad tracks went through, um, they were major hubs, right? They they allowed mm-hmm. for people to come down to Florida um, to work in those industries, and then of course the orange culture, the the, the cultivation of oranges, yeah. made the development of homesteads, um, especially for wealthy people in the Northeast and the Midwest, who would come down. And they would buy large tracts of land, buy, build a house, but also have cultivating orange groves so that the 
revenue generated by the orange groves would help supplement the the estate, right? And so they would yeah. be snowbirds, right? They would come down during the winter, right? Leave during the summer, and then there would be a, a year, increasingly a year-round uh, population that sort of keeps those communities going. At what point does Florida become? Uh, you know, today we think about Florida. You know, a bunch of senior citizens. Uh, retirees going down there. Is that kind of a, a more of a post-World War II kind of boom, or do you see that happening in like the 20s and the 30s? Yeah, you know, that the idea of retiring to Florida is very much a sort of post-war yeah. transformation, right? Um, and again, Florida's not super populated until the mid-20th century. It's really yeah. the war. Yeah. Training in World War II... Um, there are great pictures, of course, of like soldiers training on Miami Beach and they're staying in Miami, those Art Deco hotels, and they're going to go off to Europe and fight. Uh, but they remember Florida. And after the war, they're like, you know, I really liked it there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them come back to Florida. Right. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it's often difficult for us to, to remember. But that early sort of Art Deco period, uh, the 1920s, where, where Miami is like, you know, they have the Miami Regatta. They have these massive hotels with air conditioning. Right. Um, that's a that's a sort of jet setting location. It falls into a bit of disrepair and gets rediscovered after the war, right? Like by the time you get yeah. to to the late seventies, uh, Miami is sort of like in a state of um, really significant dis disrepair. It's a, a few sort of major cultural events. The Mariel Boat Lift right. confuses a lot of population. Miami Vice is transformative to oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring people back back, back to, to Miami. Um, but there, but the idea of like retirement, if you go back, um, you really do see like a large percentage of like many of those hotels that are really hopping today, they were filled with older people who had retired to Miami. Right. And that's right. really a sort of post war transformation. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of the character of of Hyman Roth in The Godfather Two. You know who lives in one of these <laughs> one of these little like cottages right. down there in Miami, right? I mean, in the what was that like this, the late fifties or early sixties? Right. Before we get into the 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 kind of argument of your piece, um, let's now zero in a little bit on Trump and his so called Winter White House, uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of Mar-a-Lago and um, you know how it ended up in Trump's hands. Well, Mar-a-Lago was. Um one of the last of the really sort of like grand mansions that were built um, in Palm Beach. Uh, it was built by um, Margaret Meriwether Post. This was her, was her uh, winter residence. Um, she was many times married, often to, to some powerful men, um, diplomats, and so on and so forth. So she often entertained uh, at, at, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, it was property that she acquired on or around uh, roughly like 1923, um, she started building a house. Definitely in 1923, was completed in 1927. Um, it was it was a a prime example of that style yeah. of Mediterranean um, sort of revival villa, sort of Mediterranean villa style, um, which all, was all was actually called the Palm Beach style um, at mm -hmm. the time. Um, because it was really sort of created by Henry Flagler, right? Because he sent architects to Europe yeah. uh, to study sort of like the Mediterranean style. They came back, they started creating his hotels, and that really became like a sort of like style template for the state. 
So that sort of Mediterranean style is really the Palm Beach style, which becomes the Mediterranean style. Um, she owns that house from throughout her life, right? It's built in 1927. She continues to sort of like uh, live in it uh, until uh, she decides to gift it to the country, right? Because yeah. she, as I said, been married to, to many powerful men. One of them was a diplomat. She had entertained people there. And so she decides to gift it to the United States. Uh, and the United States actually owns the house for, for a period of time, but it, it, eventually it becomes too expensive for the, the federal government to hold on to it. Yeah, uh, It's just the upkeep, right? It's a massive house, right? So it's a massive house in Florida. Um, they're like, hey, we can't afford this. So the National Park Service sells the house and Donald Trump acquires the house and begins the odyssey of <laughs> it becoming what it eventually becomes, which is um, a private club. Right. And that was what uh, in the, it was. That was in the 80s. He gets a hold of it. He gets a hold of it in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. OK. Um, and, and, and he gets a hold of it in part. Um, and it's ironic because when we talk about the Winter White House, when he first says that people always, you know, you know, they, they snicker uh, for good reason but you know it it's ironic because marjorie post always wanted it to be a winter white house yeah. right he, she gave it to the government with the hope that they would use it as she had used it for entertaining and so on and so forth um but when when trump acquires it it sort of opens the door uh to him to be able to um do what he always had done in a sense in, in terms of like promoting himself right um and and pr- pr- promoting like his 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 vision of like you know excess and success and so on and so forth yeah now so, you now you your article is is it's about mar-a-lago but it's not really about mar-a-lago right mar-a-lago is kind of a symbol or a window into some of these larger questions of equality of race of climate change uh what you call the florida dream right tell us a little bit about how mar-a-lago mm-hmm. and right. then and then ultimately trump right is a symbol uh of all mm-hmm. of this you know what what does mar-a-lago represent and put it in the context of of sort of you know florida history for us right so one of the things about the sort of like the way Mar-a-Lago is positioned, like so, you know, Marjorie Post gives the gives this this beautiful estate, and 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 almost every sort of description of it is a beautiful estate. Yeah. Um, and she does this in around 1973, 1974. You know, like one of the last one of the last things Richard Nixon does is he visits Mar-a-Lago actually. Uh, before he, you know, has to leave office. Interesting. Uh, ironically, yeah. Um, and and then he, you know, it sort of like sits within the in the in the hands of the, the national government, but they can't afford it. And so when Donald Trump acquires it in 1985, he's doing so right as he's sort of like making his push into like a sort of media personality. Right. You know, he he's going from I'm simply a developer to I am a media personality. Right. Like so, it's the mid 80s. He's he's sort of promoting himself relentlessly. Uh, he's made the jump into to real estate in in Manhattan, um, and he acquires Mar-a-Lago, uh, and almost immediately it becomes like a struggle for him to do what he wants with it, right? Because he has to run into um, the struggle against municipal and county governments, yeah. Um, and and the idea of like you know what can he do with this historic property 
in the context of this sort of like culture of Palm Beach. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, Florida has always been this accessible, affordable paradise. Right. So people retire to Florida. But a big part of that is that they can afford to retire to Florida. Right. And a big part of that, they can afford to get property that's on um, the coast. Right. That they can be close yeah. to this little lifestyle of uh, lounging by the beach and so on and so forth. Even though um, scientists and 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 uh, environmentalists will point out, like you're building places that are not not safe, right? Like we we're we're building on the wrong side yeah. of the dune, right? You should not be building right here um, on the beach and beach erosion and 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 beach access, whereas you have these sort of like massive residential towers all across the west of the the west coast and the east coast of, of Florida. Um, and one of the things that happened over time is that we've had so much development in areas that are, you know, arguably environmentally um, sensitive. Uh, we have huge debates about environmental regulation in Florida, um, trying to maintain sort of public access to the beach, but also trying to maintain um, uh, those areas that are important to sort of like watershed and and. Mm-hmm. wetlands and, and uh, diffusion of water. Uh, famously, of course, you know, um, Florida gets a lot of its water from the aquifer with, with so much development. One of the things people point out is that you're you're covering recharge spaces for the aquifer, right? Like yeah. water, it rains here like clockwork. Um, but if the war, if the rain doesn't get into the ground, it doesn't go into the aquifer. Yeah. And so like development is it's a huge issue across a range of things. And so um, the idea in, in Mar-a-Lago is you have these intersections of, of lots of different sort of like questions about control and development. On the one hand, Palm Beach is a highly wealthy enclave, and there was always, almost from the beginning, a sense that Donald Trump, as this sort of like uh, nouveau riche outsider, yeah. wanted to do um, more crash commercial things, which is oddly enough, he often positioned himself as a aggrieved person fighting right. against the entrenched power structure in Palm Beach. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and this is part of the reason that he, he always had these 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 conflicts with the municipal uh, and county governments. Right? He wanted to he wanted to, to do private condominiums on the estate, and they're like, no. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. Wanted, he wanted to do um, some sub development. No. Uh-huh. Uh, what he hit upon is the the creation of the club. Yeah. Um, and he, at some level, was able to, through a, a mixture, which, you know, one of the things about it is when you look at what he did in Mar-a-Lago and you look at his presidency, they're about the same. Like, in what ways? Double yeah. down on an incredibly outrageous, we double down on a, an incredibly outrageous ask, sue the government, say the government is wrong, say the government is doing him wrong, say that he's the aggrieved party, yeah. um, you know, does a switch, right? Like, okay, I'll stop doing this if you let me do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, this pattern of of sort of like legal maneuvering mixed with brinkmanship, mixed with um, presenting himself as a victim, and in some ways, brilliantly presenting himself as a victim, because of course we all, most Americans, are mindful of the problem posed by the regulatory state. On the one hand, most Americans. Um, are in favor of the regulatory state when they see the regulatory state protecting them. 
But almost all Americans are suspicious of the regulatory state when it intersects with their private property. Right, right. So we want there to be, if this is historically, we want there to be a strong defense. We don't necessarily want people to impose development rules that prevent us from doing X, Y, and Z. And so the regulatory state is not the same when you're a billionaire, you're trying to do something as if you're a, you know, a single family in a, in a, you know, quarter acre lot. But Donald Trump often speaks about himself in the same way. Like I am a businessman trying to, try to, you know, make my way in the world. And there's these entrenched elites that are preventing me from doing it and they control the government and they control the process and they're corrupt and I am righteous. And, and and if that doesn't sound familiar to any (laughs) person who is (laughs) politics, you should really stop and consider how that is like exactly what he says. Even if he can't prove it, he just says it, right? Yeah. So he, so, so Trump in some ways is, is kind of a populist, right? Or at least tries to portray himself as a populist, like right. well, but well before he's even running for president, right? His training ground in some ways right. of populist politics is Mar-a-Lago and Palm Beach and Florida sort of regulatory state. Yeah. This is, this is one of the reasons why, you know, thinking about his relationship to Mar-a-Lago the irony is that the the went on White House. Ironically, that's exactly what the lady wanted. Yeah. The irony is that the man who controls the White House, his relationship to the government is antagonistic. Yeah. Right. Like he's not a huge fan of the regulatory state, and now he's in charge of the regulatory state. And right. At some very basic level, you should not be surprised that every time he's offered up an uh, opportunity to like be regulatory or not be regulatory. He always goes not regulatory, right? Yeah, like yeah, the people yeah. who he puts in, par- in charge of the government hate the thing they're in charge, you know, publicly have said, Oh, I hate this thing that I'm in charge of. Well, this makes perfect sense. If you know the man who appointed them, right? Like he too hates the things right, that he's right. in charge of. No, that's, that's a great, <laughs> that's great. I mean, again, one of the things I liked so much about your piece was just the way in which, sort of Mar-a-Lago like explains it all, right? The kind of history of Mar- Mar-a-Lago <laughs> is just such a wonderful window into, into understanding Trump, right? Um, near the end of your article, right. uh, you write, um, quote, I'll quote here, Trump has managed to infuse a regressive legacy from the 19th century into a symbol of contemporary life, unquote. Uh, what do you mean by that? Elaborate on that. I mean, in what ways is Trump... Um, you know, sort of a product of this kind of what you call regressive legacy uh, of 19th century Florida and, and even some of the history you talked about early in the interview, right? Right. So one of the things about Trump's relationship to Mario Lago and the, the, the regressive element here is ironically, when Donald Trump talks about his position in private or public, right, like in private life or public life, he talks about himself as an aggrieved party. Right. The reality, however, is that like um, the wealthy uh, industrialists that came before him, the robber batterings like a plant and a, and a flagler, yeah. uh, he is not aggrieved in the sense that he does not have access to money. He's not aggrieved in the sense that he does not, does not have options in terms of, uh, of the capital 
uh, pathways he can apply as capital. He's agreed in the single sense that he wants to do something and someone in authority might have said no. Right. Right. Like the, the state has said no to him. And 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 being a very powerful person, he has said in return, no, I don't I don't like that. I should be able to do what I want. Now, it's important to, to be mindful that historically um, the argument here and, and, and some people on, on on comments online talk about, well, what would Florida be? Without these people, yeah, um, you know, putting their money into developing it, and and in the context of the 19th century, yes, there is a a a point to be made about how someone like Flagger and someone like Plant popularized Florida, and a series of ancillary people came after them and populated Florida, right? Um, creating communities and bolstering communities, but that's not the context by which we should understand Donald Trump. Like there are already people here. His his populist thrust is not helping little Timmy on the street achieve yeah. a future. It's about can he, as, as a incredibly wealthy developer, do the things that he wants to do. And increasingly, most Americans are deeply suspicious of this. Right. right. This has been a problem that most Americans have had for many, many years. And the irony is that by sort of like championing like Donald Trump is their savior, even though he's a card-carrying member of the class they want to be saved from, yeah. they have in fact gone back in time and sort of adopted these robber baron, adopted that kind of faux robber baron and made this person um, the driver of public narrative and, and and public policy. And, and if history tells us anything, it's that, well, while those people might be able to create things, we often go through a period of trauma trying to reconcile those structures they created, right? So yeah. everything from Andrew Carnegie to John D. Rockefeller, you know, after, yes, after they crushed their enemies and laid waste to their... Yeah, <laughs> their, their, yeah their competitors' empires, yes, they, they gave money and, and did great things, but they did crush their enemies and lay waste to their empire, right? Right, right, like, right. It wasn't all good, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is the 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 irony here, right? There's this, this, this idea of the regulatory state that is in some ways a direct response to the excesses of that period in the late 19th and early 20th century, right? Like much of the regulatory state that we have is a response to the excess yeah, yeah. of robber barons yeah. and their financial misdealings, their exploitation of labor, despoliation of the environment, their poisoning of food, their, you know, their discounting of, of safety in terms of like products and packaging, all those things like food and drug administration, uh, child labor laws, um, worker safety, all those things are responses to those excesses. And so, to have Donald Trump sort of sit there and sort of reinvigorate that persona through through being in Mar-a-Lago yeah. and using this, this language as a little populist is it's it is troubling. Um, I think for 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 me, since I as you say, I go like, well, if you think about Florida history, 
this is not necessarily what we we were voting for, right? right like, right. no one who I suspect no one who voted now maybe I'm wrong, but I suspect no one who voted for Donald Trump understood that element of this. What they understood is the aggrieved, yeah. right? Like yeah. they are aggrieved in some sort of economic narrative, and they are ignoring the sort of like marginalizing social, uh, racial narrative that is so important to to Donald Trump's. Um, messages as well so it's it's it, it is one of those things that's very 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 troubling about mar-a-lago because every time i you know think about his story of mar-a-lago like it's basically a florida story like okay he's on mar-a-lago since like 1985 yeah and every once in a while you hear something like jesus that's crazy but it's florida and everyone thinks everything and, and th- everything in florida is crazy right right, like, right. florida man and a Florida man did this. A Florida woman did this. <laughs> well, now the crazies come to you, uh-huh. and it, it behooves you to understand that the nature of the, the the gap between what you understood to be this critique of Florida as a place that's crazy, which you know, arguably, you can find many sort of like non-normative stories in many states across the union. They get amplified because they're in Florida. Is is one of the things I tell students, like it's not that crazy things don't happen in in, in Texas right, or right. New York or Chicago, yeah. yeah. Um, but in Florida, they get amplified in part because people think of Florida as this paradise place. Sure. And so the crazy sure. is even more jarring. Sure. Right? Sure. No, that's fascinating analysis. Um, you know, a lot of there, a lot of stuff there about uh, sort of uh, usable pasts, right? Um, you know, and, yeah. and, and every, you know, Trump clearly has a kind of usable past here, um, or at least he's trying to create one. Our time's just about up. Um, but let me ask you, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about, um, uh, about Irma, uh, Hurricane Irma. And, uh, you know, you have some, right. you, you say a few things uh, in the, in the piece about, uh, obviously you're writing this piece about Mar-a-Lago, not only in the Trump presidency, but also it comes out sort of uh, at the tail end of hurricane season. So I'm wondering, um, Mar-a-Lago survived, right, uh, uh, Irma? I don't think it was really uh, touched right. at yeah. all by it. But I'm wondering, you know, what is what is the lesson here uh, for Trump? Has he learned anything from the storm? Um, has Florida learned anything from the storm? What are the lessons to learn uh, from Irma in light of your larger kind of thesis here about uh, Mar-a-Lago and populism and Trump and the aggrieved and the development of this uh, of this Florida dream, this paradise? You know, I think to answer your question, has he learned anything? I, I can't I speak for his learning ability. Sure. I suspect the answer is no. <laughs> um, I, the reason I say that is because he's a uh, perhaps a, an exemplar of a broader thought process, right? And mm-hmm. um, when I originally wrote my 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 piece, uh, it was for the print yeah. version of uh, Boston Review, so it didn't have the bit about Irma. Okay. When they decided they were going to put it online, they were like, "Could you add something about Irma?" Um, so there's a little insight into sure. the, the the print versus you can update things when it goes online. Right. Uh, and they asked me to, to think about that. And I'm like, well, it doesn't really change anything. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of emphasizes my point. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The, 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 the root question here about Florida as an environmental 
space, right? Like right, it, right. It, 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 it remains and has been a place where we are arguing about is the current pattern of development sustainable? Mm-hmm. The answer is no. Right. Um, the reason I say that is not because I am against development. It's because there is water coming out of the ground in Miami all the time. Yeah. And that's why the southern half of the state floated the idea last year. We should succeed from the state so mm-hmm. we can actually put into place policies that will address environmental change yeah. right that's how bad it is let's think about leaving this state because the governor doesn't want to say the word yeah. climate change yeah meanwhile we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year trying to mitigate the effects of climate that is changing sure so that basic problem isn't going away what is probably the thing that we can see in Mar-a-Lago and see in Donald Trump and in some level, the, the, the governor, our governor, Rick Scott, yeah. is that the cost of this indecision is not going to be weighed equally. Mm-hmm. Mar-a-Lago was untouched by this hurricane. But the reality is, is there are thousands upon thousands of people who aren't wealthy that were touched and will continue to be touched. And those people who have the resources to weather climate change are the people who are least likely to sort of like recognize the impact of what is self-evident for so many scientists, right? Yeah. Again, you know, all the scientists, even the reason, you know, the reasonable scientists, like they're all in agreement. Yes, this is real. Sure. Um, They're all predicting things like, yeah, that place is going to be underwater, being like Palm Beach. In a hundred years, right? Like it's not going to be there. Yeah, the water is rising. It's in the wrong place. It's on a barrier island. It's going to have to go away. Yeah. Um, not because they are alarmist, because like that's what the science is. When you have, as one of my colleagues said, when you have a three uh, hundred year floods in five years, you need a new standard for a hundred year flood. Sure. Right. Like that's not that's not normal. Right. So what was a hundred year flood? We're going to have to change because we're having that all the time. Yeah. That's the environmental reality. And the people who can afford it can afford to ignore it. But everyone else can't. I think the the armor lesson is that who can afford to ignore it versus. Yeah. Just who cannot. So it's a, it's a class issue. It's a race issue. So, so here's the question. Here's my final question. Um, Will Mar-a-Lago be underwater in a hundred years? Yeah, because th- that's what the the sea that's what the scientists indicate, right? right like it's right. not it's not like I want it to be underwater. <laughs> I'm just like, well, you know, if the current pattern of sea rise yeah. continues, it's gonna be underwater in a hundred years. Right, right. History here is a guy, but it's contemporary people who have to make the decision. Decisions, right. So if if you're that particular scientific point, like, you know, sea level is rising, Mar-a-Lago, because of where it's positioned, like many, you know, islands who are facing the effect of climate change, um, they are going to have to make decisions about what they're going to do. In 100 years, their environments are going to be radically different. The only thing that can change that is the decisions you make right now. 
And even if they make those decisions in a positive way, it may not change it. So yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah. This is great. This has been a great conversation. Um, I think we all learned a lot too, Drew. Um, uh, through this conversation, I didn't know anything about the history of Florida before I before I read your piece and talked to you a little bit. So thanks so much for coming on. Uh, get out there and read that Boston Review uh, essay uh, called "Draining the Swamp." Uh, Julian, how can we um, learn more about you? Do you have a website? Um, yeah, I do have a website. It's julianchambliss.com, www.julianchambliss.com. And I'm on Twitter at Julian Chambliss. Good. Well, again, thanks for being on the show. We appreciate the conversation and uh, and have a great day. Oh, thank you. It was a great conversation and uh, keep up the good work. It's always great to have a, hear about a great history blog and uh, history podcast and people talking about history. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that was another great interview, Drew. I, I again, I said this during the podcast, but you know, I, I try to read Boston Review as much as I can because I often enjoy their perspective on things. And when I saw this piece, and, and it was written by a historian, and it was really reflecting and putting Mar-a-Lago into this kind of local and statewide history, I thought, what a great kind of model for you know thinking about uh, the Trump presidency thinking about the history of Florida, right? Um, a lot of stuff going on there. And then, you know, with Irma, especially, it just, it just seemed very timely for this kind of conversation. Well, I was, I was really struck by, I mean, I'm thinking back during the interview, I was thinking back to, to our own, um, episode 17, which was with, uh, Douglas Bradburn, who's the, mm-hmm. the director of the of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Founding director. Founding director, yes. Yeah. So, you know, and, and we, we go to these places like Mount Vernon or Monticello and use them as ways to really get into the minds of our presidents. And, I mean, that really is what, what Professor Chambliss is doing here with Mar-a-Lago, using this as a way to understand where the ideas that really drive the Trump presidency come from. Yeah, it was just fascinating. Like you probably you probably picked this up during the interview when I heard you know hearing him sort of portray Mar-a-Lago and Trump's wars with um, the the Palm Beach County, you know, as this kind of aggrieved populist, right? Who the state is preventing from exercising his sort of true liberty, right? His true freedom, right? The state gets in the way of this. And then the sort of irony of it all, right? That, that it is actually, the regulations are there to actually, to protect the people who voted for Donald Trump. You know, again, history is filled with these kinds of ironies. Well, I, yeah, and that's, that's the enigma of this presidency is how does this rich real, real estate developer from New York win the hearts of, yeah. of some of the most rural parts of our country and, yeah. and, and for whom there is such a wide cultural chasm. And, and, and I think this, this thesis is at least one piece of solving that enigma. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating too, to think like, you know, like this is presidential history now, you know, I mean, sometimes I have to pause and say, you know, this is not just passing fancy, right? We're, people are going to be talking about like Mar-a-Lago in like in history books in like a hundred years, this like resort uh, that Trump happened to buy. And, you know, all of these issues are now part of our collective past. And, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, from a historian's perspective, we, we need to take them seriously. And I think that's what 
that's what Chambliss does in this, in this short piece. I really hope he develops this into some kind of a larger project because I think this Florida context explains so much about uh, Trump. Yeah. And I mean, and again, gets to that, that difference. We think of him as being from New York, but in many ways he's from Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we hope you enjoyed our conversation today. We are looking forward to some great future episodes. So stay with us. But in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Julian Chambliss. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia.